Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program, and myself have been in the United Kingdom for their party season. And I say party in quotes because what I'm talking about is the three annual conventions, which they call congresses, of the three political parties, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party called Tories, and the Scottish Independence Party, which uh, controls the government in Scotland, the local government of Scotland. The first Congress, and these are generally, you know, rah, rah affairs, went pretty well. It was the Labour Party. They're ahead of the Conservatives by about 30 points in the polls. They confidently expect they will make, form the next government after the next election, which will be presumably in two years, but which the prime minister could uh, call at any time. Unlikely to do so, the conservatives have an 80 seat majority in the House of Commons, uh, but they are woefully unpopular at the moment. They have a new prime minister, Liz Truss, and she has not begun well at all. In fact, one publication said it was the most unimaginable bad beginning for a new prime minister. Labour, under Keir Starmer, also known as Sir Keir Starmer, which is a bit confusing as he is the Labour leader. It was no fireworks expecting to inherit, as many commentators have said, the default party, and he may be the default prime minister. Liz Truss, oh dear me, what a terrible mess it was from the beginning, she's had to do a number of U-turns. She produced, or her <clears throat> Chancellor of the Exchequer, that's the finance minister, produced a, uh, a mini budget, which is a bit unusual, with a tax cut and all sorts of unfunded expenditures, partly, partly to be sure to deal with the huge energy crisis in Britain, but it went over like the proverbial um, <clears throat> led, uh, you know what I mean, balloon. And then up in Scotland, it was the old tune. We had heard it before. It was uh, <coughs> Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish leader, uh, the, the leader of the nationalists in Scotland uh, at their party convention uh, saying that they had to have independence. They had to separate from Britain and that's where it all stands. Uh, a very unhappy Congress season for the political parties, particularly for the Tories, the Conservatives. It's a time they sort of shone. They had a new prime minister. They have a huge majority, but everything that could go wrong seemed to have gone wrong. Now, there are many commentators saying that she, Liz Truss, will not be prime minister after Christmas. That would be about the shortest reign of a prime minister ever that I'm aware of. Linda, what are your, what's your reading? I think you've laid it out very well, Llewellyn. And my reading is, if this were a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, the line would be in there, here's a pretty mess. Here's a how do do. It is so awful um, between the chaos and the economic turmoil. It's, it's hard for me to believe that at this point, 
Nicola Sturgeon, as you said, the leader of the Scottish National Party and First Minister, would want to push so hard for independence. It, it would seem rather strange time, but that's that's what she does. That's what the, they've had power in Scotland after so-called devolution when they were given much more local power. Um, they've had power for uh, 17 years and they're still talking. There was a referendum in 2014 whether they should leave the union with England and the answer was no. Now they're trying again. They have a two-pronged approach, one of which is uh, to hold another referendum and they've gone to the high court to see whether that would be constitutional, legal, whether they could do it. And the other one is they're going to have an election next year and that is going to be on the ballot first and foremost. And she will say, whatever the outcome of that election, that that is a mandate. The backstory though for all of this is turmoil and a terrible winter coming up. Uh, to explain what is happening in energy in England, you have to look at electricity bills. And part of why Trust has had to raise so much money uh, and why she failed with her tax cut is that in order to keep families heated, uh, electricity on through the winter, they're going to have to be subsidized. There's no way that people can pay their electric bills. And I'll give you a little example. The pubs are closing at a tremendous rate. Uh, very soon, about half the pubs in England might have been wiped out. But I'll give you an example, and that is in a village, the local shop, just a little local convenience store, the only store there was in the village or is in the village, it's not gone out of business, was paying about 7,000 pounds, give or take the exchange rate, that's eight, $9,000 a month in electricity, which is pretty steep by our standards. Uh, suddenly they're going to be getting bills of over 50,000. They cannot go on. And the government is trying to redress this with subsidies. They can't do anything about the electric supply at this point. They can't control the price of natural gas, which is key to the cost of electricity. And they certainly can't control what is brought upon, upon them much of the problem, which is the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the high cost of gas. But there are other problems in England. Uh, many governments have failed to take the, the steps they should have taken to ensure an abundance of electricity, and it hasn't happened. It's an unhappy situation. Now, it's interesting, Llewellyn, that the rallying cry for Scottish independence, this is the rallying cry for the Scottish National Party, is stronger for Scotland. And it would seem to me that when the economic plan is unveiled, one of the things that they're talking about is energy. And there's a 20 billion pound plan to use the oil revenues to build a fund for Scotland, a little bit like I would say the Norwegian sovereign fund work. The, the, the problem is Scotland is a very small place. It's not physically small compared to England. It's, it's got one of the largest open land areas in Europe uh, in relation to population, but you've got more than 6 million English plus the Welsh thrown in there. Uh, and 
in Scotland, you've got 5 million people. Uh, that does not really make for a viable country, which according to uh, Nicola Sturgeon and her party, want to get out of, get out of NATO, uh, rejoin the European Union. No, they don't qualify economically, uh, all the hurdles they'll have to jump. And of course, the problems with their, their long association with England, there's an 80 mile difference between uh, across oceans, basically where the Romans built Hadrian's Wall. Well, are you going to have uh, across the British Isles, customs posts and all that stuff? It's, it really isn't very practical. I would also mention, and I think you're very aware of this, Linda, because you told me, that Scotland is a separate country already. And it has been ever since the Act of Union a little bit over 300 years ago. So, you know, the Scots have their own educational system. They set some of their own taxes. They have a totally different legal system. They have Roman Dutch law. The English have English common law. And uh, when you're in Scotland, which both of us have been recently, and wonderful, wonderful place it is, rush to Scotland. Edinburgh is one of the great cities of the world. And the beauty around the locks is just unbelievable. Um, but uh, as a viable country on its own, without any ability to defend itself and not enough energy to sustain a, a, an economy just on energy. Um, it, somewhere I've always thought that Scotland lost its way somewhere after the Second World War. Uh, Scotland led the empire. There's a new book out, which is, uh, points to that. And well, you've done some research on the, the science that came out of Scotland, this, the literature that came out of Scotland. Well, you were referring to uh, the book that's been out for a little while by Arthur Herman, who's a professor at George Mason University and also uh, works with the Smithsonian. But the name of the book is How the Scots Invented the Modern World, the true story of how Western Europe's poorest nation created our world and everything in it. And he basically looked at two centuries. He looked at the 18th and the 19th century. And he looked at the inventors of the time and he looked at the intellectuals of the time. And if you think about what happened to go back and well and how Scotland and, and, and England have worked together in when the 1707 Act of Union, it gave Scotland access to England's global marketplace, triggering this enormous boom for them, this enormous boom. And then of course, Herman credits what Scotland, Scotland's transformation with its great education system and its education system was democratic. While England had basically two universities, Scotland had many of them. Scotland had five universities at the time. And it also led the Industrial Revolution. James Watt, who invented the condenser on the steam engine that changed everything, including the life we live today, uh, was a Scot. You had the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment that included Adam Smith, and it included Hume, who developed the philosophical basis that influenced James Madison in the Constitution. But if people really want to know what Scotland has done for them, I made a little list that I think I, I'm calling, what has Scotland done for me? Well, Scotland invented the 
or Scottish inventors invented the TV, mammal cloning, everybody remembers Dolly the clone sheep, the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, penicillin, the MRI scanner, the refrigerator, the toaster, the daily disposable contact lens for anybody who's ever worn them, it's been a wonder. ATMs, color photos, the flushing toilet. What would we do without our flushing toilets? The steam engine, of course, which was Watt. And the tidal turbine. There's a company up in Orkney in the Orkney Islands, way north of, of in Scotland, uh, called Orbital Marine Power. And 63% of, of the UK seas are around Scotland. So you can imagine this, how well these turbines you know, will benefit what Nicholas Sturgeon believes will be a renewable economy as an independent economy. Really, Scotland provided the cutting edge in the empire, the Scottish regiments, Scottish engineers building the great uh, railway systems in Africa, in India especially, in what, what was then India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. A huge contribution. And of course, our own Scottish engineer uh, and controversial figure, Andrew uh, Carnegie, uh, as in Carnegie Hall. The, the contribution of Scotland has been huge. Uh, and of course, the writers, you know, we all grew up with, I did anyway, with Robbie Burns, because it appealed to me being a bit dissolute as I was and as I thought he was. Uh, but, but also you have you have Scott and, and many other, and Robert Louis Stevenson, um, and so Scotland has always been a country and a very proud country. And one of the things that's interesting when you drive around Scotland is you don't see the Union Jack, which is formerly called the Union flag flying. You see the Scottish flag, which is the St. Andrew's cross, the blue and white cross, the simple cross. It's in the Union Jack, but in Scotland, they fly it by itself. Uh, I think that it will be very difficult for Scotland to operate as an independent country. And we see with Ukraine, the price of independence, if you're not part of alliances, if you don't have a lot of support, besides which the Scots and the English have rubbed along sometimes acrimoniously, but often rather constructively for so long, they're all on the British Isles. Now, uh, the uh, island provides a different kind of example, but Scotland is very special, and it's a very special contribution to the success of England. At one time, most of the large ships on earth and railway engines were made on the Clyde, the river in Scotland that was the industrial heart of Britain. Uh, so, you know, the, I, I, I don't know, but it's not for me to say. I, I, I just think the Scots have so much to be proud of, but they, they seem to be caught up with this strange thing called sovereignty. And uh, they voted against uh, Britain leaving the European Union. Uh, unfortunately, Britain did. And that's another source of anger in Scotland. Well, it's interesting also that in 2015, when there was a general election, uh, the Scottish National Party said that independence was not their aim. So why is it, I keep saying, why is it their aim now? And Nicholas Sturgeon gives us a, a kind of romanticized idea about why it would be now. 
she said at the at the party congress that first is the fundamental right of the nation of Scotland to self-determination. And second is what history teaches us, the overwhelming power of democracy to triumph. What is she referring to there? She referring to the fact that the Scots are not allowed to be a democrat there's no democracy there i'm in no way to in no position to i'm not close enough to the issue uh, to say whether scotland would vote for independence is very unlikely to happen and it has to have uh, the agreement of the house of commons the british government the british administration um, and scotland would lose so much financially in separating from britain it has nowadays remarkably little industry is doing very well though in biotechnology uh, and some high tech but not enough to sustain the whole scottish economy which is so dependent on britain in the u.s we have a con each party has a congress before when it selects its presidential candidate so we have a congress every or a convention every four years in britain they have one every year and usually it's rah-rah, usually it's saying, it's normally the attention is between Labour and uh, Conservative, the large parties, uh, which are also represented in Scotland, by the way. Um, and for many, many decades, the government of Scotland or Scotland returned to Westminster, to the House of Commons, almost entirely Labour members before Scottish nationalism um, created its own a party and now we have Scottish nationalist MPs who sit in Westminster. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, this peculiarity of having the Congress every year, normally it's Labour saying that the, the Conservatives are the worst creatures on God's earth and the Conservatives saying the road to, the road to Moscow is paved by the, the Labour Party. Just look at them there. They're all communists. They're going to destroy Britain. Nicholas Sturgeon said uh, in an interview, which she had to step back from somewhat, that she detests the Tories, the Conservative Party of the Prime Minister, Liz Truss. She detests them and then had to say, no, I just detest their values, what they stand for. The real here and now is not whether Scotland will stay in the Union. I would bet that it will for economic reasons and because they have nearly everything they want under the present arrangement. They have a remarkable degree of self-government and to some extent have had it all the 300 years plus of union. The big thing is how is Scotland and England and Wales, of course, uh, which is always rather forgotten in these discussions, uh, going to get through this winter and how devastating is it going to be then there are very ambitious plans we talk in the united states about burning less natural gas to make electricity they are talking about burning less natural gas period including all the gas that's pumped into homes for cooking and heating it would be one of the great engineering undertakings of of the country to change all those systems. And if it goes to hydrogen, hydrogen is not a one-for-one -one, uh, uh, substitute for natural gas. It requires different handling, different equipment. 
etc. Interestingly, they've didn't done this before when they went from town gas, which was a mixture of hydrogen and some other <coughs> gases, uh, which was the first gas in Britain, the famous gas lights, gas lamps, and that was uh, done away with, totally uh, eradicated from Britain. No, no, no more of it's made. It was mostly made from coal uh, when natural gas was discovered in the North Sea. Now they're going to possibly have to re-engineer the whole heating system. It's very ambitious, but none of this is going to affect this winter, which is going to be very difficult. Uh, the, the big arguments about whether the government should spend more money, uh, telling people how to keep warm, how to turn their thermostats down. If they have thermostats, there's not that much central heating even today in the United Kingdom. But I think if we if we go back to to the economic headwinds that they face, that for me is a is a is going to be as much a factor this winter as as the cold, as the actual lack of heat. And sovereignty is a pretty nebulous concept, uh, and it sounds great. It's sort of like patriotism. Uh, um, Johnson, I think, said, uh, uh, Samuel Johnson, that was, uh, um, you know, lost refuge of scoundrels. You know, this is a very nebulous thing. And Britain bought it, uh, voted in a plebiscite, in a, in a referendum to leave the European Union. And the other thing is referenda or referendums, I don't know what you say, but uh, they're not really part of the constitution, you know, in a country that has representative government. Now this all gets a bit strange when you get to Scotland because the locally elected Scottish parliament wants independence. The Scottish people by and large have not shown that they do and the polls still don't show they do. Uh, so the representative government argument doesn't quite work. Uh, I think it's a sideshow. I think the great thing is how is Britain going to fix its economy? And with that, of course, will be the repair of the Scottish economy. Although my goodness, when you're, it's a very forced way to judge a country by how busy its restaurants and bars are. But right at the moment in both Britain and, and in Scotland, uh, people are out partying as though there's no tomorrow. Uh, but tomorrow is coming and it's going to be cold and it, there's a lesson here for the United States, a very important, indeed a critical lesson, which is if you don't look out for your future electric supply, you will be in a lot of trouble. Uh, I believe we have an awful lot of initiatives to clean up our electric supply, to keep it going, to fix the grid, et cetera, but no single coherent plan. And the Brits had no single coherent plan after Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher had some very definite ideas of how things should be done. And she backed them up with policies. And she didn't just leave them hanging out there. I don't agree with all of them, but with many of them, and I'm fortunate to have met and interviewed Margaret Thatcher, which uh, is extraordinary. We don't have a leader in Europe like Margaret Thatcher or like Ronald Reagan, and together they were remarkable. May I say that the leaders that we have in the UK right now, um, if you look at Keith, uh, Keir Starmer, 
who sounds a little bit like Tony Blair, and Liz Truss, who would like to be Margaret Thatcher and often imitates her, even with the pussy bows that she wears on her blouses. But, but here is not Tony Blair. Uh, and Liz is definitely not Margaret Thatcher. And this is a time where we need leaders. Linda, where across the European continent? Yesterday's leaders. Linda, where across the European continent do you see any leadership except the leaders of the extreme right? Orban in Hungary, the new woman we're not sure of yet in Italy. Uh, she doesn't actually take office till the end of the month. Um, uh, we have this move to the right, Macron in France. Uh, move to the right. It's under a lot of pressure from the right. Move to the right in Sweden. Um, there's, frankly, there is a leadership deficit. And the leaders that I'm looking at right now in, in the UK are just, to me, do not have the substance of the leaders who they try to imitate. And it's just, this is a time where we have, you know, where events, where the event of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really brought us to the point of, of asking, where are the leaders in this, in this time? And why, where are the wise men and women advising these young leaders that we have right now? Well, there are a few good people, but they're not in a position to influ influence policy. Yep. And it's time for a new generation. I feel this very strongly. I think it's true in the United States as well. We are in need here of a new generation of leaders. The vision thing, as uh, uh, one of the Bushes said, is very important. And we don't have any leaders with vision. What we have in Europe is a sense of Oh, everything will work out. Don't worry about it. Uh, and now we see that if you don't worry about it, things go wrong, whether it is the invasion of Ukraine or the crisis in energy in Britain, which is not all to do with the Russians. It is partly to do with mismanagement, lack of future preparation by the successive uh, English administration, but mostly by the Conservative Party, because it's been in power for a long time. That is so true, Malone. Um, so, you know, we're going into a new period where one hopes that we will see a new generation of leaders, of exciting new people. Uh, I don't I don't know who they are in Britain. I think it's probably, probably likely to see them emerge faster in Britain than we are here, actually. Uh, we, we don't seem to have anybody who's uh, able to change the immediate discourse, which is so paralyzing to our politics. The party season is over in the United Kingdom, and now the tough part of governance and getting through the winter is what they all have to deal with. I, because we've talked so much about Scotland, and because I really love Scotland so much, am wearing this fine Scottish tie, and I'm taking it off. Our show is concluded. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.